Even Paul in his, the scripture reading we had earlier, uh, highlighted the importance of repetition. (laughs) So for those of you who have not been tracking with us over the last five or six weeks, uh, we are currently in a series uh, which we've entitled Make It Count based on the book of Philippians, and today will be number six in that series, and so we're, we're well into it, we're getting close to the end. We have said from the very beginning that Philippians was written by Paul from a prison in Rome, and that the overriding theme of the letter is joy, which we said is ironic since Paul is imprisoned, he's facing huge difficulties, hardship, possible death even when he's writing this letter. And so what we have grasped onto in this series is that as he writes this letter, the message he's conveying is this, if we are willing to adopt a make-it-count attitude in our relationship with Jesus, we will experience joy when life does not turn out as we had planned. So last week, we considered evidence of how a make-it-count approach to faith creates and promotes an environment where apprentice-making remains the priority. Today, we are going to consider how a make-it-count approach to faith will only be possible when we have what we would call a real or genuine relationship with Jesus. Now, you may ask, is it possible to have anything other than a real, genuine relationship with Jesus? Is there any other kind of relationship with Jesus either than a real, genuine relationship? Well, the truth is, no, there isn't. But that doesn't stop us sometimes from substituting a genuine relationship with Jesus for an emphasis on appearances and activities Instead, and that's the issue that Paul is addressing here. He's pointing out the difference between these two in this next section of his letter. Now, Paul is qualified to address this issue because he's lived both ways himself. This is his personal experience. And so, in this passage, he shares his testimony of his journey of faith, he shares his testimony from what he was in the past, who he is now, and what he is looking forward to in the future. He's been on a journey that has led him into a genuine relationship with Jesus. And of course, because of that, we're able to hear the kinds of things in the midst of his hardship that we've been hearing along the way. Thank you, Gary, for sharing the scripture this morning. It's been read for us. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, it is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. We're going to start today in the past. Now, in many of the Bible translations, and some of you may uh, be holding one of those, Paul begins this section with the word, finally. And when you read that, you would think that he's now beginning to wrap up the letter. But the word interpreted finally, actually in the original language, means furthermore or in addition to. And so many of you will see that in your translations as well. He's telling them that there's still more that he wants to share with them. 
there are some things that are really important that are still yet to be said. Now, the last section of the letter that we looked at last week, we said was very positive. It was uplifting. It was encouraging. And again, there's a shift here because now he needs to deal with some unpleasant matters that need to be addressed in this church. These are not new issues. He's not bringing up new information. As we alluded to last week, going all the way back to chapter 1, Paul addressed leaders whose intention, whose message was not honorable. And so now he returns to focusing on this particular group of people once again here in chapter 3. And of course, he justifies his repetition. He justifies the fact that he's bringing this group of people up again because he's saying, this is really, really important. Because if I don't address this, then I'm not protecting you, and it's really important that I, I do my best to protect you, so it's important that I, that I bring this up again because I don't want you to fall into false doctrine. Now, he identifies the opponents that he's referencing here, and he calls them Judaizers. Judaizers. And they're, they're a segment of Jewish Christians that existed in the church at this time. Now, the interesting thing about this particular group is that the grace of God provided through the death, resurrection of Jesus for salvation appears to be not quite enough for them, that they felt the need to add additional expectations to make things more complete. And so the goal of the Judaizers the specific goal of the Judaizers was to have those who came into the church that were of Gentile descent submit themselves to the act of circumcision and other Jewish practices in order for their salvation in Jesus to be seen as complete. And it becomes clear how Paul feels about them by how he references them. First, he calls them dogs. Now, he's referring to a common experience in Paul's day where there would be wild, vicious, homeless animals that wandered around, and they would attack people as they were passing by. Paul says these Judaizers are like dogs. They wandered around, and they're viciously attacking new believers with false doctrine and improper expectations. Now, what is ironic is that when you talk to those of Jewish descent, when they use the term dog, they were always referring to Gentiles as dogs. But here, Paul turns the tables on them. And he's calling them dogs because of how they're treating new believers from Gentile descent in the church. Then he calls them evil men. I mean, we don't have to sit back and say, so Paul, what are you trying to say? He's pretty clear. He says, you are evil men. Literally, you are evil workers. You have put a high level of your energy and your time and your emphasis on focusing on these issues, on legalism. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Now, of course, this is a reference to their emphasis on the Jewish requirement of circumcision. 
Circumcision was an external sign, an external symbol of inner purification and commitment to God's covenant in the Old Testament. Now, sadly, the symbol itself, like many things in faith, the symbol itself had become the priority, and they had forgotten what the symbol represented. And so their present practice of circumcision had no spiritual value. They were mutilating the flesh, Paul says. It's just an outward practice that wasn't necessary. Judaizers misunderstood the Old Testament, and now they're misunderstanding this as the New Testament is unfolding. Paul says true believers, those who have a genuine relationship with Jesus, they don't focus on the circumcision of the flesh, they focus on the circumcision of the heart. And so he's using this symbolically. And then he explains what he means by that phrase, circumcision of the heart. He says true followers of Jesus worship with the Spirit of God. They serve God through the power of the Holy Spirit that's at work in their lives. That's how you know they have a real relationship with God. In contrast, the Judaizers worshiped and served God through their human traditions and their misunderstandings. Secondly, Paul says true followers of Jesus, those who have a genuine relationship with Jesus, they recognize that their hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone, not in external demands, not in external practices, believing that, that true believers in Jesus believe that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross fulfilled the law, and now Jesus is the focus of their faith, and that's enough for them. That's it. That's all they need. And then thirdly, Paul says, those who have a genuine relationship with Jesus, their confidence is not placed in the flesh. Now, the term flesh is a term that described a person or things outside of the spiritual realm, outside of relationship with Jesus. Sinful humanity had no grounds for confidence in God. They're powerless to achieve the righteousness that God requires. But a follower of Jesus, someone who had a genuine relationship with Jesus, Paul says, they put their trust in Jesus. There's no boasting, there's no pride, there's no confidence in themselves. It is Jesus and only Jesus. And so to drive home his point, Paul segues to what is what one of the most powerful verbal exchanges we can have, and that is the sharing of his testimony, telling how he, what his personal story of faith was. He says, let me tell you something, Judaizers. Do you want to boast? Okay, it's on. If you want to boast in the flesh, if anyone here has a right to, vote, to boast in the flesh, it's me. He said, I could stand equal to any of you in terms of outward activity. That, he says, I could outdo any of you. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is a Jewish custom. I'm a descendant from the tribe of Benjamin. My parents are Jews. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I studied under Gamaliel, the most illustrious Jewish rabbi of my day. And I was once a Pharisee. I worked in the profession as a Pharisee. He had a great zeal for the Jewish faith. 
Before coming to Jesus, he promoted Judaism and he condemned Christianity with great zeal. In fact, he became a prominent leader, leader, as we read the New Testament, in the persecution of the early church. His reputation reached well beyond Jerusalem. He was not casual in his emphasis towards Judaism. And he says, if he were judged by men based on the law, based on the wrong criteria, he would have been deemed blameless among them. Paul can identify with their zeal, their intentions, because that is where his own journey of faith began, with emphasis on the external, on the law, on the activities that he participated in, and not on a genuine relationship with Jesus. From there, he moves to the present. The person that Paul is presently is not the person he used to be. Something significant had taken place in his life. And as we read Acts chapter 9, we see what happened to him. He's on his way to Damascus. He has permission from the Jewish officials to go there and arrest these new Christians. And while en route, he literally encountered Jesus on the Damascus road. Paul learned that all the things that he just outlined before that were actually advantages viewed by those in his field, he said they were actually liabilities. He said, I once viewed them as profit to achieve righteousness by the law. But he said, I've come to realize that the opposite is actually true. He said, they were holding me back. They were a detriment to me. The law did not deliver in his life what it had promised to deliver. And so by emphasizing and trusting in human performance, he failed to progress and move forward in a genuine relationship with God. Now the irony of this is that it caused him not only to not pursue Jesus, but to persecute the church, which actually proclaimed the true message of righteousness. He said, I once enjoyed a lot of advantages and prestige in this life. But he said, you know, now as I look at it, it's just garbage. It was just rubbish. It was just worthless. It, meant, it means nothing to me. Paul willingly gave it all up to gain genuine relationship with Jesus. Now, a lot of people, the Judaizers, might look at Paul and say, wow, man, you gave up a great deal. But he says, I have gained so much more than I have given up. He says, I'm now found in Jesus. Found is end time terminology. That, he says, someday I'm going to stand before Jesus. Paul wants it to be revealed when he stands before Jesus that he had a real relationship with Jesus, not his own righteousness. His previous way of life garnered the admiration, admiration and praise of men, but, but not the relationship that God provides. And so to be found in Jesus requires righteousness that only God can provide, he says. Faith by faith. Faith is the opposite of works. It's accepting God's provision when you realize that your own efforts are futile. And then Paul explains what happens when you, when you come into this real relationship with Jesus. What is it that takes place? And he uses the death and resurrection of Jesus as a model. 
And he says that salvation is like experiencing the power of the resurrection of Jesus in your life. It's that you get this new life and you're free from sin and shame and bondage and spiritual death. He says that when you come to Jesus, you get to fellowship in his sufferings. Not that anyone can share the wounds of Jesus, but they can identify with the wounded Jesus. And yes, there's suffering in the believer's life, but you get to suffer with Jesus. Paul sees suffering for Jesus as something that was gained in his life, not something that was a burden. And he says that when one comes to Jesus, it means it's, they're changed to be like Jesus. They experience death to their former lives. They are changed. And so he says that when one comes to Jesus, you receive the promise of the resurrection, which is the longing of every believer. Paul doesn't know if he's going to be alive when Jesus returns or if he's going to be dead and then raised up. But either way, he knows that he will receive one day a resurrected, glorified body, and he's longing for eternity based on the reality of the relationship he has today. He's given up a spirituality based on works in the past for a relationship based on grace in the present. And then he shifts to the future. Now, he says his life in Jesus is a pursuit in a new direction. He wants his readers to understand that he is not perfect. He's not perfect. He hasn't arrived yet. That he hasn't received all that he longs for. He wants them to know there is a continuing responsibility when you come into relationship with Jesus to continue to pursue that relationship with Jesus. And he outlines for the Philippian church how he himself is pursuing Jesus in terms of the future. He says, one thing I do. This sentence, the terminology here, stresses a priority, a consuming passion. He says, His, this is the priority of my life. This is my consuming passion. And then he uses the metaphor of a foot race. And he says, in a race, you can't dwell on what's behind you. And so he says, this is my passion, forgetting what's, what's behind me. A conscious refusal to not let the past absorb his attention so it impedes his progress in the future. Paul is choosing to not focus on the past, what he once was, how he failed before, how he came up short many times. He's choosing not to focus on that. He says, I have to look ahead. I have to see God leading my life into the future. Not even his present spiritual accomplishments can lull him into thinking that he's arrived. He says, I'm pressing forward. I'm following with intensity. Paul, whatever he puts his hand to, is done with intensity. When he persecuted the church, he persecuted it with intensity. When he followed after Jesus, he served Jesus with intensity. He still has the same intensity as he anticipates his future. But now he has a new goal, a deeper relationship with Jesus. And he calls his goal the prize of the high calling of God. Again, using athletic terminology where the winner of the race would be summoned by the judge to approach the elevated stand in order to receive the prize, the award. Paul's ultimate goal and prize is to be rewarded by Jesus at the end of his life for the race that he has run for Jesus. And he says, nothing can distract me 
from my determination to reach that goal. And so Paul is then calling his readers in Philippi to think in harmony with what he's saying. I want you to live in this same way. He says, you're progressing in your faith, and he's confident that God will lead them into truth if they too pursue him. It will take deliberate action to pursue after a relationship with Jesus with that type of intensity. But Paul acknowledges that, yes, there are very levels of spiritual, varying levels of spiritual, spiritual maturity in the congregation, but he says, my expectation is that every believer in Philippi would pursue a deeper relationship with Jesus in the future. And so he addresses his relationship in terms of past, present, and future. Paul was able to model a make-it-count approach to faith in his life because he had a genuine relationship with Jesus as his number one priority. And I would suggest this morning that if we are going to live lives that model in our lives a make-it-count approach to faith, when things are difficult, when things are painful, when, when they're seemingly hopeless and there is no future, then we too need to make a genuine relationship with Jesus our number one priority, where we intensely focus our lives. Now, this morning, for the sake of application, there are just two things that Paul highlights here that I want to focus in on that I think are important for us to understand for us to reach that point where we are confident that we have a genuine, a genuine relationship with Jesus. The first is grace, period. I think it would be fair to say that most of you in this place this morning know at least some of my story. Most of you know that I was born and raised in a Christian home. I would take it a step further. It wasn't just a Christian home. It was a Christian Pentecostal home. And there are differences. Our church, our local church in our little town, operated from what I would describe as a fundamentalistic, legalistic approach to faith. And the result was this. The God that I was raised to believe in, the God that I was raised to serve, was presented as a God whose love and grace and mercy depended on my performance. That's how I was raised. If I believed the right doctrine, if I acted in a certain way, if I avoided certain language, certain people, certain places certain practices, then I was a good Christian and God accepted me. But if I failed momentarily in one of these areas, well, I must be backslidden and God rejected me. And consequently, and some of you might be able to relate to this, I can't even tell you the number of times in my growing up that I recommitted my life to Jesus. Every youth camp, every youth rally, every, you know, powerful service at church being made, made, made to feel like that you are just so appalling in the sight of God that you just, you needed to recommit your life to just to make sure you got it right because you didn't, you didn't want to take the risk. So, I mean, you know, I got saved about 50 times. 
I was raised to believe that God loved me when I was good and wanted to send me to hell when I was bad. That's what my church preached. And it wasn't just my parents. I, I don't blame them. Our whole church culture supported this approach to faith. So most of us growing up in that took one of two roads. We either walked away from church outright, or we learned how to make it appear like we were measuring up to the requirements, even if it meant faking it and living a double life. Those are the two options that most of us chose. Because this kind of faith culture creates an environment where more emphasis is placed on externals, what people can see, than on internals, one's heart, and the deep-rooted work of God that's going on in our lives. Many of you know that I came from a large family. About half of my family walked away from faith, had no interest in being a part of spirituality like that. And let me tell you, to be honest, I don't blame them. I don't blame them for not wanting to be a part of that. Some of them dysfunctionally carried on the pattern of childhood and they adopted a performance-based grace for their own lives and raised their own children the way we were. And miraculously, some of us somehow found the real Jesus in the midst of it. The truth is, it's often easier to focus on externals and performance-based faith than it is to accept and enjoy a personal, genuine relationship with Jesus. Now, I'd like to be able to stand here to tell you and then say, you know what, that was long ago and we don't see that anymore. I, I wish I could tell you that, but I wouldn't be truthful if I did. This is not an issue that was specific to my context and my upbringing. I've been in the ministry a long time. And my observation is that many people are still more comfortable focusing on what others see on the outside than they are allowing the Holy Spirit to do the deep-rooted work on the inside. Many are still more focused on what they do instead of accepting what Jesus is giving. And the result is it affects how we live out our lives as followers of Jesus. People who are consumed with appearances and performance but lack love and grace tend to categorize people as backslidden when they make wrong choices. I'm not going to say mistakes. I don't like the word mistakes. They're wrong choices. We say, well, I made a mistake. No, you didn't. You made a wrong choice, and there's a big difference. Rather than seeing relationship with journey, Jesus as a journey filled with moments of failure. There are highs and there are lows. There are moments we get it right and moments we fail miserably. But people who are caught up in appearances see failure as abandoning God. I don't know what they think of Peter and the others. They sure abandoned God. They sure failed. They failed Jesus. 
Yet somehow he loved them enough to put the responsibility of the greatest movement that the world has ever seen on their shoulders. People who take a legalistic performance approach to faith deliberately avoid sinful people. They avoid sinful places and they instead choose the Christian alternative because they want to keep themselves pure. In the meantime, the mission of the kingdom is neglected. People who take a legalistic performance approach to faith place more emphasis on issues than they do people. In fact, they miss valuing people because they're so consumed with the issue. People who take a legalistic performance approach to faith crumble when real hardships come because all of their efforts can't change anything. And their expectation of God's intervention is almost arrogant. They're demanding God what he is to do under the, uh, you know, the, the excuse of, of, of authority in Jesus. And sometimes the reality is this. If we're used to being a part of an approach to faith where we are telling everybody what to do and how we should do, then we end up doing the same thing with God. And we end up justifying ourselves with God. And that's when we have those moments where we say, God, I have served you. I've done this and I've done this. I sacrificed this. I gave this. I went to that. I, I gave that up for you. Now you owe me. That's where it takes us. But people who have a genuine relationship with Jesus have learned that they are loved by Jesus despite their performance and they find comfort in his love. People with a genuine relationship with Jesus don't judge other people and kick them when they're down. They demonstrate compassion because they know that if it weren't for the grace of God, it would be them. People who have a genuine relationship with Jesus are motivated to model Jesus at whatever cost. And the result is they pursue sinful people, not avoid them. They go where they need to go to live like Jesus lived. And then the true mission unfolds. People who have a genuine relationship with Jesus elevate the value of a person over the importance of an issue and a person's sin every single time. People who have a genuine relationship with Jesus demonstrate a make-it-count approach to faith when their world falls apart because they have learned that they can trust Jesus and depend on him to their core, and they trust him regardless of the outcome. Folks, if the church, if followers of Jesus are going to be an effective force in this world as we anticipate the return of Jesus, we will need to come to grips with the reality that it is grace and grace alone 
that saves us. And it needs to be more than words. It needs to be more than cliches. It has to be lived out in our lives. Spoken with our actions, not with our lips. A focus on grace brings us into a genuine relationship with Jesus. So that as he holds us against his chest, we can hear his heartbeat. But focus on performance creates a legalistic environment that suffocates the love of God. The love of God can't breathe in those rooms. A make-it-count approach to faith requires a genuine relationship with Jesus that is rooted in grace, not performance. Secondly, look ahead. I think it's fair to say that many of us struggle with our relationship with our past. Now, one thing we tend to do is we tend to elevate or exaggerate or romanticize the past. Last week, I mentioned the senior pastor who mentored me. He was unusual for his age group because while the others were all talking about the good old days, he'd look at me and say, they forget what it was really like. They're romanticizing the past. They're making it better than it was. I was there. Sometimes we elevate, exaggerate, romanticize the past as the good old days, the best years of our lives. When I look back on my past, I have way more friends than I really had. I was a way better athlete than I ever was. I was better looking than I ever was. Past. We live our lives longing to experience what we remember experiencing in the past. Oh, I want to go back and experience that again. So much so that we, we make it in our minds even better than it was. Even better than it was. And the result is discontentment with the present. And we miss living in the now. And we miss looking to the future. Because our eyes are in the past. Our heart is in the past. Our passions are in the past. Sometimes we have elevated our past spiritual experiences so high that it's easier to live with memories of past moments with God than experience the new ones. It is so much easier being the former pastor of a church than the present. Because in the former years, it was always so much better. If God just lets me live long enough that someday I can be the former and it's going to be great. Because the former is always better than the now. Now, alternatively, sometimes the past is not the good old days. That, it's not the good old days that hold us, but it's the pain of the past. The things that we experienced that were so deep-rooted that were tethered to the past to the point that we can't move forward. We want to let go of our hurts. We want to let go of our unforgiveness. We want to release our painful memories and trust Jesus, but we just can't seem to get there. 
The point is, is that our relationship with our past can affect our relationship with Jesus because it becomes a prison holding us back from the future that God has for us. Now, let me say, our past is important. We are who we are because of our past. We can only know where we're going when we understand where we've been. There are lessons that we've learned in the past that will help us as we embrace the future. The past matters. The past is valuable. But I want you to understand today that our future is not in our past. It's not in our past. God has brought us this far. He hasn't just brought us here to only bring us here. He hasn't brought us this far to only bring us this far. There is so much more to be experienced of God. There is so much more to do for God. And our relationship with Jesus cannot be a yesterday experience. We sing we need another Pentecost. Why? The first one wasn't good enough? No, that means we want to go back. And No, it's in the future. Our relationship with Jesus cannot just be a yesterday experience. It must be a today experience. Folks, God has done many wonderful things in and through this church through the years. And if we were not to honor that and respect that, we would be missing out. Things that we recall fondly and value that have helped us to get where we are. But if our focus in this church is on the past while neglecting the future, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. This is who we are today. This is what God is calling us to in our time. Our past will give us momentum to move forward, but we must move forward, taking new steps of faith. When my kids were growing up, there were certain things that were never talked about as my responsibility and Jen's responsibility, but they were just assumed. One thing that fell to me was teaching our kids how to skate. I think it became obvious why that was the case. <laughs> Not that I was an expert skater or a skating coach at any level. No, it wasn't any of that. Just somehow of the two of us, I figured we figured they had a better shot with me than, sorry, hun, but. Yeah. And so, child number one was easy. Oldest child, keener, follows the rules, wants to please, right? Child number one was easy. So I'm, I'm standing with child number one. Child number one is doing what all kids do. They're standing there, scared to death, staring at their feet. Didn't have any coaching experience, but I just thought, if I could just get them looking forward, I think I could take their eyes off of their current situation and get them moving. And so child number one bought into that relatively easy and within a few moments doing her little thing around the rink. Child number two, also known as middle child, doesn't always come as easy. Do you ever notice that it's a different set of rules with each of your kids? Right? They're all different. And so I'm out there trying to duplicate what I did with child number one with child number two, and it's not working. And I'm frustrated 
because I want her to skate, but I also want to succeed because this is important that I can go back and Jen goes, good job. It's not working. I'm at wit's end. I put my hands in my pocket and I felt two coins. And I thought, hmm. Child number two came out of the womb reaching for change. (laughs) Didn't get a chance to cut the cord. She just broke it. I see change on the table. I thought, I wonder. I have a dime and a nickel. I'm holding 15 cents up. Probably why it was still in my pocket. Can you buy for that, right? And all of a sudden, her eyes got huge. And she's no longer focusing on her feet. She is making after that 15 cents like it's Black Friday at Walmart. (laughs) And before you know it, she's 15 cents richer and she's barreling around the rink. You see, sometimes it's only when the promise of something better in the future is presented to us that it becomes the priority that we're able to, to shift our focus towards and go after and stop holding back because of our fears or other realities. Embracing a better spiritual future begins by believing that what lies ahead of you is better than what you're leaving behind. Our relationship with Jesus should intensely cause us to reach towards the future. All that God has in store for us with passion and excitement. You see, a make-it-count approach to faith requires a genuine relationship with Jesus, and a genuine relationship with Jesus builds off the past and reaches for the future with everything that we have within us. I don't know about you, but do you ever... This is, going to be, this is going to be really honest. Do you ever have Sundays when you wonder, why are we even doing this? Am I the only one who ever has asked that question? Why are we even doing this? I mean, think about it for a minute. You came all the way here, you sat here, sang some songs. What, 60% of the people didn't even seem interested, perhaps? I don't know. You can be honest, too. I think I picked that up from some of your comments. No percentages, but your observation. And then I stand up and talk at you for another 40 minutes. Like, really? Seriously? Like, why do we do that? Why are we even here? Do we really need this? Is this what Jesus envisioned when he thought about the church in the future? Like, really? Does anyone else think of this stuff? Oh. Think I'm out on a limb? Just Maybe just the two of us. <laughs> But I have to ask, why are we here? Because, well, I don't want to give my life to something that is just filling time and collecting a paycheck. I don't know about you. Maybe that's good for you. That doesn't work for me. So I've had to process in my mind, what is the value of this? What is the value of this moment? What is the value of what we have done since approximately 10 o'clock this morning? What value is there in this? And this is the conclusion I've come from. This is valuable. And you know why? 
Because when you leave here until you're back here, you're going to be surrounded by a culture and an environment that is going to totally try to push you away from the orientation of your life from the kingdom of God. That's what's going to happen to you. All week long, you are going to be in all kinds of environments, in your home, in your neighborhood, at job, whatever you find yourself, and it's going to be places that are influencing you, whether you believe it or not, realize it or not, to change the orientation of your life to a materialistic culture that only cares for self and consuming instead of the kingdom of God. And then we walk in here at 10 o'clock, some of you it's a little later, some of you, it's a lot later. But you walk in here, and God's intention in using this moment is to help you reorient your life back to the kingdom. To help you realize that in every worship moment, we are reminding ourselves of truth and who God is, and what he means to us, and what he's called us to. And as we sing the songs, it's not about our favorites or the melody. It's about being exposed to truth that doesn't exist when we walk out. When we hear the word of God or someone prays for someone, things are happening that are counterculture that's helping us to put things back so that we can leave here and live the kingdom of God as Jesus has called us to. That's why we're doing it. Now, why did I share that with you this morning? I don't know. I just don't know when to stop talking. I share that with you because, listen, there's something significant to do. And it's not about making this place such a good show that everybody wants to come here. Quite frankly, I don't care about attendance numbers. I don't. I don't care about money as long as there's enough to fulfill the vision. And by the way, right now, there's not quite enough. What I care about, am I a part of a community of people who have chosen to orient their lives around what it means to live out the kingdom, to have genuine relationship with Jesus. Because when that happens, our time and our money, it just all falls in place when we've aligned ourselves to him. So in looking ahead, let's not kid ourselves that we're there. You're not there and I'm not there. I'm going to walk out of here this afternoon and I'm going to think about something better that I already know own that I can replace by buying something new. I fall out of alignment. I get trapped into the thinking. I lose sight of the kingdom. And we need to realign. Our future, the future of the church in North America looks very different than it has existed for the last 40 or 50 years, I'm sorry. But it does. We're at a repentance moment. We're at a changing moment where we're realizing that the size of our congregation doesn't impress Jesus. It's have I aligned my life to the kingdom? Am I doing what he's called me to do? Would you stand with me with the worship team? Come. Our future. A make it count approach to faith will not be possible 
without a genuine relationship with Jesus. A make-it-count approach to faith requires a relationship with Jesus that's rooted in grace, not performance. A make-it-account approach to faith requires a relationship with Jesus that builds off the past, takes the good and the beneficial from the past, and then reaches for the future with everything we have within us. I'd like to think that's who we are. I want to believe to my core that's who we are. I want to believe that's who I am even though I disappoint myself more than I disappoint anybody else on many occasions. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come, and this morning we want to take opportunity to pray with you. Some of you here are going through some difficult things. Some of you need your family to gather around you and people to care about your, your situation and, and to pray with you and encourage you, and we want to do that this morning. That's important. It's important. But maybe for some of us this morning, this is a moment when the Holy Spirit is talking into our lives with a megaphone saying, realign, embrace the future, go after a real, genuine relationship with Jesus that's kingdom-oriented and leave this behind. Leave it behind. Because like Paul said, Man, I thought that stuff was good. I thought it really mattered. I thought it was important. It's just garbage. It's just garbage for what I know now. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit would lead every single one of us to that place. Carlene, would you lead us this morning? Prayer team, would you come? We want to take some time to pray with you. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, as we stand before you this morning, you know us. You know every detail. You know every thought that we have thought. You know everything that we have done. You know our shame. You know our guilt. You know our moments of celebration and victory. You know our moments of failure and despair. You know our moments where we have gained and moments when we have lost. You know us. And as we stand before you in this group this morning, we know that we are standing before you as individuals. And God, would you, would you do something in our lives today? Would you, for those who are so tethered to the past, the heartache, the, the unforgiveness, the brokenness, the things that have been done and said, would you set them free this morning so they can move into the future without carrying the baggage of the past? God, as we stand here this morning, for those of us who have chosen to focus on the past and the good things there rather than pursuing the future with what we don't know, but we trust in the faithfulness of God. Would you help us to shift our focus forward, to cast off our fears and to pursue you with all we have within us? God, for those of us who have put so much of our lives and so much of our energy into building a, 
an image of, of who we are and what we want others to believe of us. Would you help us channel that energy into learning the art of repentance and confession so that we can change? Take us from being people who deny to people who acknowledge and find grace and move forward. God, that's the message that we all signed up for. That's why we came here. That's why we came to you, that in our brokenness and our sinfulness, we could be honest with who we were and find something in you that we could never find elsewhere. And sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget. God, we believe that you have so much for us. You have so much for our families. You have so much for your church. God, I pray that we would never settle on any level for good enough. But Lord, we would pursue you with hunger and desire and intensity, believing that our best days are not behind us, that our best days are still yet to come, that you're not finished, that we're not disqualified, that we can be a part of it if we just align ourselves to truth, to you. And so, Lord, as we leave this place this morning and we go out and live in this world that has a culture and a mindset that is countercultural to the kingdom of God, would you help us to be the light and the salt that you've declared that we are to be? Would you help us to not only preserve our own lives, but would you help us to affect and impact the lives of others along the way? To understand that there is a way to live. There are values to be pursued. There is a treasure in a field that's worth selling everything you have so that you can gain that treasure. Oh God, Realign our hearts today, we pray. Help us to help to accept that your grace is enough. And help us to look forward with all that is within us to all that you have in store. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.